Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya, and today we're discussing the fifth episode of the second season of His Dark Materials, The Scholar. episode was directed by Leanne Willem, making this her third episode in a row. This episode was written by Francesca Gardner, who also wrote the second episode of the season, The Cave. In this episode, Boreal brings Mrs. Coulter to Will's Oxford. Will and Lyra use the subtle knife to pull off a heist at Boreal's house to steal back Lyra's alethiometer without giving up the knife. Mary Malone packs her bags and travels into Chitagatsi at the behest of the dust-controlled computer. I don't think that sentence is accurate, but I didn't write it. No? <laughs> what would you no. say? Huh? Did- I can't talk about that outside of the spoilers. I feel like that's a reasonable interpretation based on what we've seen so far. Sure. Yes, based on what we've seen so far. <laughs> okay, well, now that... This isn't standoffish at all. <laughs> now that we're already did... fighting, who wants to talk about their general feelings? <laughs> uh, I really like this one. I I thought it was a very strong episode. It felt to me like it was kind of bringing together the all the plots that we had from the previous season of like will versus boreal and uh, coulter versus lyra and like they kind of had a standoff each of them with their primary antagonist and they won and it it feels like i don't know it feels like uh, the end of an act or something in a in a larger story um maybe like act two or something like that and it just had like a lot of energy to me and uh setting up you know, where we're going next at the same time. So I thought it was really good. Yeah, I was super excited to be back watching the Mrs. Coulter show again. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not like we haven't seen Ruth Wilson, but it's been a while since we've gotten an episode where I feel like she is as prominent as she was in this one. And she basically steals every scene that she is in. So it was just really delightful to watch from that perspective, there's also some really interesting character work um, with Lyra, with Mrs. Coulter, and with Boreal. So I I loved all of that. Like half of my notes just say, Ruth Wilson smashed this. Oh God, I hate Mrs. Coulter. And I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe she was quite important in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) My notes are mostly just uh, things about Mrs. Coulter followed by lots of exclamation points. (laughs) Despite my love for everything Ruth Wilson and Mrs. Coulter, 
I kind of felt about this episode the way that Francis felt last week. Where I was like, it was good. It was solid. I wasn't blown away. I don't know. And to keep the uh, switch going there, I mm-hmm. really liked this episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was like, I enjoyed the fact that it was very focused rather than being quite spread out over a bunch of different storylines. This was, there is one major storyline we are following. Everything that we're touching on ties directly into that. And it just made it a really like easy to watch episode, even just on its own. Yeah, honestly, when I think about each individual scene, I'm like, yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was really good. So I don't know why I feel this way. I just, eh. Yeah, I didn't dislike fair. it in any way. I was like, yeah, it was a good episode. But I wasn't like, oh my God, I need to talk about everything right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly how I felt about last episode. Yeah. Exactly the same. <laughs> uh, from that, let's talk about my favorite bit, which was definitely like I actually laughed out loud when Boreal turned on the music in, in his little seduction cave there. Yeah. <laughs> that was fucking fabulous. The sound quality from these speakers is quite... Something. I can see why you like it here. You'd like it here too. I was considering investing in a research project. That would certainly suit you. Concerning elementary particles. What do they know of that in this world? Enough to interest your daughter. Sorry? Carlo, can you make that stop? <laughs> it should have been Let's Get It On. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it was wow, so good. Wow, wow. <laughs> I think I literally paused the video and had a good chuckle because it was, you could just see how awkward it was. And, oh, it was so good. I love that he's trying so hard to impress her, and it is working zero yeah. percent. Yeah. <laughs> In a more serious manner, I did also love the final scene between Lyra and Will, which is just more of what we were talking about last week, where they keep giving them these really well-written scenes and well-acted scenes that show their their development together as as characters and as friends, and I like it a lot. That scene is so good. Yeah. It's so good. Okay, but I'm I'm not ready to stop talking about the music yet because Okay, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like that song choice was I mean, it must have been so deliberate. They must have thought a lot about what they were going to choose there. Uh, like they were saying something about Boreal's character, right? Like mm-hmm. I feel like they picked a song that is not super like catchy or poppy it doesn't have a good hook or like pull you in it's it's a little bit like yeah you immediately recognize its intent yes yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. not like a popular genre yeah. it's like i've i don't know music genres enough to say but it it felt like some experimental out there kind of rock song you know like are you saying perchance that boreal might be quite pretentious and be behaving a lot like <laughs> right. a new money CEO city sort of guy <laughs> and in fact it's all superficial yes yes <laughs> uh my favorite thing i had a couple i i really love i love the windows i just love everything about the windows from the previous episode and like how they're closing them we got a lot of like reverse angle shots of the windows which is always something that i think about when you get magical portals in books like 
what is it <laughs> like what if you walk through a portal on the wrong side <clears throat> and stuff like mm. that and some really good acting from Amir Wilson when it comes to those windows they're, like they're totally convincing to me because of him uh, so yeah. I, did, I, I love those I was just gonna say I think everybody who interacts with the windows does a good job mm-hmm. yeah making like when Mary yeah. was sort of hesitatingly reaching out to it in my head I was like there's actually nothing there but it I didn't know, right <laughs> but it was good yeah like it yeah I wasn't even thinking about that I like bought into it so much the the main thing that I loved in this episode was just the adaptive choices where instead of Mrs. Coulter like in the book how she shows up and Lyra is very afraid they actually confront each other here uh, and then the same thing for Will and Boreal. And I already talked about like all the energy of the previous season going into that. So I just, I think that's a really strong narrative choice and it, it feels like a satisfying arc to me. So I really respect that choice. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the heist feels much less uh, stereotypically heisty than it does in the book, but it's still really good, you know, cause in the, like a classic heist, right, is all about these sort of like machinations. You come up with a detailed plan and then, you know, something unexpected happens and you have to improvise. It's more like we don't really know that much about their plan going in. And it's much more about the two different character matchups and the emotional and the physical fights that ensue from that. Um, So I would almost argue that it's like, not really a heist in the same way that the book is, um, but it's still mm-hmm. really, really good. Um, and I loved the way that Boreal brought Will's mom into it. Yeah. That's a good point. That was so cool. What would your mother say? What? How is she, your mother? Awful to think what could happen to someone so vulnerable. Ah! I think it also played very well into the character of Boreal there. Mm-hmm. Like, he is devious. He is really quite ruthless. And that's the sort of thing that he would have done. And I actually found that nicer than him, like, trying to shoot them, which yeah. he does in the book. <laughs> yeah. <I remember> quickly. <laughs> right. Like, for my favourite part, that was exactly what I had written down, that the adaptations, there were quite a few of them. And I liked pretty much all of them, which is unusual for me, because in general with the series, I often preferred how they did it in the book to how they did it in the show even though they didn't do it badly in the show but for these ones this time uh, they made sense they threw me for six sometimes but they you know they made sense i'm curious what other adaptations you're talking about besides the heist i think that the way that mary was talked to by the dust rather than um what was it that happened in the book? I just like want to they, say they that to in her. the show, it is they admitted to being angels, not dust. <laughs> um, the angels, then. <laughs> if Thank I you. remember correctly, in the book, the angels talked to her when she was experimenting with them, rather than just sort of randomly when she wasn't all plugged in and dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And whilst I slightly preferred that element of it, it still worked very well from a kind of condensing that part of the story a bit uh, and gave a little bit more space to add her cousin coming back again, her explaining that she was going away, which doesn't happen in the books. So, it, which 
kind of you know it implies the question what everyone else was thinking while she just suddenly disappeared in the perks i think that was her sister wasn't it oh yeah sorry um i mean could could have been both all right well, uh. Okay, <laughs> let's not examine that too closely. Um, but yeah, I really, in general, liked that adaptation. It just gave more space for things to occur. A lot of the narrative in that part was taken up by her dealing with the machine. And I always slightly felt like if the angels were able to fully control the machine, they would have just destroyed it with beyond all repair. They were the ones who were in control of it working in the first place. And also, like, if they didn't want to answer, they wouldn't answer. Yeah. You know, whether the machine worked or not. Exactly. It worked mm. because of them, is mm. how I saw it. And so it just never made sense to me that, like, she pulled all the wires out. And it's like, yeah, but she probably had schematics. Why didn't she, why didn't the dust just not respond? Well, the angels not respond. Yeah, so, like, that was another one which I really liked. Okay, so my favorite part is just that opening scene, which is so good. And I think it really sets the mood for the rest of the episode. You have Mrs. Coulter just like watching everything and you can tell that she's not panicking. She's not losing her mind, but she's just very out of place and just like carefully observing everything and all the ways in which this world is different from hers. I thought it was like really subtly handled and yeah, basically like 50% of Ruth Wilson's line deliveries uh, were in the running for my favorite part. Uh, she's so good. And the, the just like the disdainful way that she holds and then looks at the blue jeans, that actually <laughs> made me cackle out yeah. loud. <laughs> you know, when, when we first got the episodes and I was looking over the titles of the episodes and I saw, you know, they're always named after the chapters um, from the book, which is cool Easter egg. Oh, I didn't but, realize um, that because I was a little bit annoyed at the title of this episode because it's called The Scholar, which is a reference to Mary. But, that's what I was thinking. But, like, but she's it's such actually, a minor part of this. Well, I think it's Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. Is, is my point. Yeah. Well, yeah. so I actually, <laughs> I had that in my notes too. I was like trying to figure out, are they, is that also a subtle reference for Mrs. Coulter? So I'm glad that yeah. you think so too. I like that. Yeah. It's cool. Like my expectation was, oh, we're going to get a Mary episode, but it's actually a Mrs. Coulter episode about like, what could I have been? And I, I just love that. Mm -hmm. I love the way that when um, she's talking about Mary, she talks with this reverential sort of uh, feeling where she, she initially sounds like, you know, she's she's holding up the kind of act and she's like, oh yeah, she's so fucking free and able to research what she wants and not limited by the expectations of men. And shit, I really like that. God damn it. And <laughs> like, this sounds great. And yeah. you can tell that she's got that sort of, I would say chip on her shoulder, but that sort of minimizes it. She's in a really shitty situation. And she sees this other world which actually has it. And she's like, oh, that would be nice. I probably wouldn't be this evil if I could have just done my research. How do you define my note? Impertinent. Intelligent. Free. I found her arrogant. 
Like many women in this world. Do you find me arrogant? Of course not. Take a breath, Marisa. You're clearly upset. Did you know when I was an honorary scholar, I achieved the highest results in our final examination? But because I was a woman, I was denied a doctorate by the magisterium. I've written plenty of papers, but they're only published if I agree to let a man take the credit. What did Malone say to upset you so much? Hmm. Do you know who I could have been in this world? What do you remember about the scandal over my affair with Asriel? He seduced you and then abandoned you. Leaving me a grieving widow with a child out of wedlock. Why are we talking about Asriel? We're not talking about Asriel, we're talking about me. There's like an injustice that she feels. She feels cheated on on some level. And like yeah. the way she plays it, how angry she is about it. I think it's completely understandable, but it's also like toxic. It's not healthy for her. It's not, it's villainous. Like it's just so, that's so good. It's so smart. I also really yeah. liked that they had these two characters meet and be like a really yes. interesting foil for each other. Because they never do in the book. Mm-hmm. And yes. I'm glad that that happened. It was very interesting. Yeah, I I agree. That's probably my favorite adaptive choice from this episode. Yeah. Can I help you? Yes. Mrs. Malone. Doctor. This is my private office. Who let you in here? Oh, please forgive me. I have heard all about your work and it sounds absolutely fascinating. Whichever private investor sent you, you can read my work when it's published. No one sent me. Marisa Coulter. I'm an experimental theologian. I think you know my daughter, Lyra. You're Lyra's mother? I am. Is she all right? She's fine. We're staying with friends in Oxford. I'm taking her home. She mentioned trouble at home. It's been a huge misunderstanding. She told me what happened, and that is why I'm here. I wanted to apologize to you in person, in case she was a nuisance. She wasn't a nuisance in the slightest. I loved meeting Lyra. It was the most interesting conversation I've had in ages. The ideas she has. What ideas are those? Well, about the morality of dark matter. Or, um, what does she call it? Dust. Her grasp on quantum physics is astonishing. And the compass. The alethiometer. Yes, how she's able to understand it, I have no idea. It's extraordinary. You must be so proud. I am. So, 
It's experimental theology you've been teaching her. It's not a field of research I'm familiar with. Where would you say theology comes to science? Why does it not? It kind of mirrors what we got last time where Lee and Coulter meet. And then in this one, she meets Mary and they talk about Lyra. And I think that like there's a kind of effortless kind of way that look at how I'm running this department and I have all these degrees and I'm so like easy to deal with your daughter. Like I have everything you want and and I'm not conscious of it. And it just like she just falls apart in there in a way that she kind of did with Lee and she just storms out because she can't, you know, she just can't handle it. Yeah. And it's fabulous. And it's, it's even more underscored by the fact that at the end of the episode, when Lyra says, I don't want to be like either of my parents, I want to be like Ma Costa or Lee, you know, Mm -hmm. she's like thinking about what she wants her parental figures to be like at the same time that Mrs. Coulter is, running into these kind of like pseudo parental figures for her own daughter. And I think it's like great foreshadowing and motivation to set up what's going to happen next season. And it's also like right after that is the moment where I actually fell in love with Will. And he's like, you don't have to be like anybody. They would be lucky to be like you. And I was like, oh, my God, Will, I will marry you. (laughs) Yeah, that was beautiful. (laughs) It was so good. Yeah, that was, was a good bit. Again, another ad- another adaptive choice, which just nice, just added to it. So if that was your mother. I've never seen you like that before. She can seem so good sometimes. And I want to believe it, but I mustn't. Once. She used her demon to hurt Pan, to hurt me. I'm always scared of something bad's happening to my mum. But never that she'll hurt me. It may sound strange, but I hope I'm not like either of my parents. It didn't feel good. Acting like she did. I hope I'm like Marcosta or Lee Scorsby. Myra, you don't need to be like anyone else. They'd be lucky to be anything like you. Well, now that we've got this back. I will do nothing but help you find your father. Promise. Uh, least favorite parts. I hate the part where Will tells her that everybody should be like her. What a <laughs> bunch of bullshit manipulating her. No. Did they ever actually decide to steal the alethiometer or did the episode just assume that we understand that we're not giving him this fucking knife after everything Will just went through. Like, I feel like there's no discussion. It just is assumed. I mean, I think if you're like a mystically connected to an object, you're not going to just give it up. 
I just wish that they had said it yeah. at all. I wonder, yeah, I wasn't confused about it at all, but I wonder how much of that is just coming from the book, you know? Right. Yeah. I'm sure it's fine. I have two. Uh, it really bothers me that the computer angels just say something about a hornbeam and then suddenly Mary knows where to go as though there is only one hornbeam tree in all of Oxford, possibly all of England. Why would she, you know, like, how did she figure that out? Mm-hmm. I don't remember if that if there was more information in the book or or, any, or if I just didn't notice it in the book, but what the fuck? I think it was kind of bullshit in the book as well. Yeah. They should have just given it that long. <laughs> <laughs> just plug or this into Google Maps, right? Uh, I don't know. Like, they could have made the name of the street, like, something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, know. I, uh, I didn't notice that, that bothers but me. I wish that I had now that you mention it. It doesn't seem well, like it works. Now that I think about it, I do think it's always been the same in the book. And I've read that book one million times. and <laughs> It's never occurred to me before. So, um. And then also, I really, really did not like the scene with Angelica. I thought it was... Yes. I understood that we had to see that Tulio was uh, Spectre dead or whatever, and that Angelica was angry, but why didn't she just attack them right then? Mm. Why, why was she threatening? Yeah, why Why so. didn't they just lose... The, like, it was just weird, her yelling at them but not doing anything about her anger right then. They didn't hold the knife up and threaten her away or anything. They were just apologizing and she was just saying she's going to get them. And I'm like, well, get them right now. They're right fucking there. Yeah, I agree. There was something about that scene that just it like didn't quite gel. I was just going to say, I think that they would have done better to show Angelica finding Tulio and then show later Angelica trying to ambush Will and Lyra. Yeah. That would have made more sense. It would have been a more obvious way of it happening. It just seems really arbitrary that they happen to run across Angelica just when a major plot point's happening. And it's like, oh, that's awfully convenient. And I think that's basically how it happens in the books. No, in the book, they're still in the tower. And Tulio oh, leaves yeah. the tower, gets right. Spectre dead right away, and Angelica looks up at them, and they can just sort of see in her eyes yeah. that she's going to kill them. Right, that right, is right. much better. I mean, I understand how in a book you don't want to have a million point of view characters, but in a TV show, you can just do that. Like, you can just show us that scene with Angelica and Tulio. We don't really need Will and Lyra to be there seeing it. Well, I I think there's a lot of complicated emotional stuff going on with Lyra in that scene and Will as well, because both of them have like a lot of guilt in their past around people that, you know, like Will considers himself a murderer and then... Lyra feels responsible for Roger, but also she found Billy Costa, who essentially is like the same as Tulio, uh, you know, in this circumstance and watched Ma Costa like break down and then, you know, um, cremate her son in, you know, in front of her. And, and just the, the trauma of all that, like the reaction that they have is not the way that it is in the book where Lyra is extremely confrontational and like I should have killed that bitch and and stuff like that it's like she's very apologetic they're both apologetic and it feels emotionally real to me for on their side but I think Caitlin's completely right that it doesn't feel emotionally authentic from Angelica that and Mm. that's part of what's uh, not working in the scene I think that's really well observed but also like how did Mary know where to go what the fuck 
<laughs> I think my least favorite part was just Mary deceiving the Guardian. I felt like a board security guard is less impactful to deceive than a police officer, especially for a relatively law-abiding citizen like Mary. So it just felt like it gave it was the same interaction with the same goal, but lower stakes for essentially no reason. And I was like, eh, I preferred a bit more planning, Mary. She found this window out of fucking nowhere. The least she could do is expect that, you know, maybe she might have to do something. This is private property? Yes. I'm supposed to be here. Where's your Latrum security pass? Latrum security pass. I left it at work. I'm sure you can make an exception. Nope. Okay, uh, I'll just, I'll call Charles. This is Coulter? Yes. We were told to expect you together. He's on his way. Of course, Mrs Coulter. Thank you. But, like, in the... In the book, we had more time with, um, or more understanding that Boreal was taking over their department and Oliver Payne was all in on that. So, like, Mary had more information about that happening. So it mm. made sense for her to yeah, then she, she, like, made make a her counterfeit fake ID. ID. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this time, she basically had to just think on her feet. And you could see her processing, like... Oh, he said Latrum. That guy who yeah. came to see me was Charles Latrum. I'm gonna name drop him. Um, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. I mean, I liked the mm. way that it showed her thinking quickly on her feet. Yeah, I guess I I liked what it gave us about Mary's character compared to the book. But I also get your point about it kind of lowering the stakes. All right. Any uh, any problematics? I don't think this is problematic exactly, but um, the way that Boreal gets rich in our world or Will's world is to sell the like, you know, indigenous culture that still exists in his world, um, which is kind of like some colonizer bullshit and kind of like gives back that element to the character that we talked about previously has been taken away by casting a man of color. Which is, is like interesting as a super interesting choice, I thought, um, that I really liked. Yeah, I also like that it explained how he got his money. Because mm -hmm. yeah. we were talking about that before and we just had no idea. Yeah, it's elegant and it's like it's evil and shitty and colonizing and like perfect. Great. You like this is what villainy is. Uh, I love it. I also like yeah. that it's it's lying. You know, because yes. he's bringing yeah. these things that are modern from his world to this other world and saying they're these ancient artifacts like. <laughs> and he's that's fine with interesting. It. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, these people are so irreligious here. And like he's pawning off this bullshit and like, yeah, it's cool. It's all right. They're dummies. Who cares? That one was so interesting because we talked a lot last week about how like that he had faith. He was just in the magisterium because power and money. Hmm. But almost immediately, he's like, this is a world of consumerism, not, um, does he say faith? Yeah, actually, not, so that line yeah. was yes. so good. I wrote it down. Um, he says, yeah. they have the appearance of freedom, but the government is far more corrupt than the magisterium. 
twice as many shopping arcades, half as many places of worship. It's a culture of consumerism, not faith. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was really interesting character moment for him because I genuinely don't know if he's saying that because he believes it or if he's saying it because he thinks Mrs. Coulter believes it. I do also like that he acknowledges straightforward that the magisterium is corrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder what he would think of as corrupt, though. Like, you know, it's corrupt in the way that there were like nuns sitting in on Dr. Lensilius's trial or stuff like that, you know. Uh, morally corrupt. But yeah, but <clears throat> what does that mean for him? Like, you know, it's morally corrupt in the sense that like we give too much leniency to people to study whatever they want. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if your morals are all fucked up, then you'd be like, well, th- that person's immoral. And be like, yeah, but what do you mean? You know, <laughs> to steal a quote from another magisterium person, heaven help us from the women. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, lad, you need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus. <laughs> Speaking of that too. It's... Y'all need some authority. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that wasn't problematic that I was grateful for, you know, vis-a-vis the book in this was that Will saw Mrs. Coulter and was frightened and hid behind a couch and then ran away from her instead of, uh, you know, being arrested and being like, wow, she is hot. And I sure am turned on now um, (laughs) the way that he was in the book. So I appreciate that. That was a problem in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad they did not do that. Um, But just going back to Boreal (laughs) for a second, I think it's a really good character moment for him when he's trying to, explain all of the artifacts from this world to Mrs. Coulter, (laughs) um, like the piece of the Berlin Wall. Um, I think it shows that, like, yes, he's using these artifacts in order to get money and power in this world, but he also is genuinely curious about it. Like, it is a true passion of his. And in a way, it almost makes him a scholar, too from the title Mm -hmm. of the episode. Oh, interesting. A gentleman scholar. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it it gives him a little bit more depth that we know that he's not just collecting these things for money and power. He has a a genuine interest in them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt like that whole basement is like him bringing her there, I felt like was not like a contrived seduction as much as it was like an act of like vulnerable intimacy. Yeah. That he was like, this is, this is me. This is who I am. You know, all my secrets now and like, come share this life with me. And she was like, bitch, please. You know, (laughs) it was so good. Okay. So I have one question in this week's ask a Brit section. Um, There's totally two written here, but okay. (laughs) The first one was not a real question. (laughs) Oh. It has three syllables. I know. Now you you have to explain. When Daphne Keen said it, I was like, shit, that word does have three syllables. We start by cutting into the cabinet room. What if Lapsum's in the cabinet room? You can't force him to give the alethiometer back. I wasn't thinking about forcing him. You were. Oh, shut up, Pan. (laughs) How do you say it? You you kind of just forget the middle vowel. It's just cabinet. 
Yeah. No, I don't. That's correct. <laughs> cabinet. In American English, cabinet has two syllables. In real English. It's cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, but my real question was, um, what is the cultural context slash stereotype for a cottage in Devon? Because um, I know Devon is southwest, but I don't actually mm-hmm. know, like, what the landscape or, like... Is a cottage in Devon just, like, a boring pastoral place? Like, I don't... Yeah, I have no context for that. If you were going to take your sabbatical at your family's cottage in Devon, then you're really not pushing the boat out very much. Okay. (laughs) Like, a lot of... You know, there are plenty of people, particularly people who are privileged enough to own more than one house, which I may have ranted about before on here. (laughs) Um who like the a second holiday house will often be somewhere like Devon or Cornwall because they're relatively cheap um they're pretty nice they're a bit away from no a bit away from um like the hustles and bustles of city living um but fundamentally it's probably not going to be the most interesting place to be it's relaxing okay not a lot going on in terms of like culture or excitement but just like very pretty and kind of boring Pretty boring, like lovely. Devon's a wonderful place. It's full of excellent nature and things like that, but it's not going to be the same as traveling to a different world. Yeah. (laughs) It's like kind of the polar opposite. I've actually always wanted to go to, uh, I think Dartmoor is there, the national park. Yeah. I've always wanted to go there. It's amazing. It's, um, it's It's all built on a massive granite bailiff. Yeah. Which probably means it has higher rates of cancer, same as Aberdeen. Interesting. Because but radon. good hikes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so now is the science section, um, and my question for Francis, since I know you know about spiders, um, mm-hmm. what is that spider, and also? what sex is it because when i like paused on the frames and the palps looked pretty big to me and i was like did they give that male magisterium dude a male spider because that would be hilarious if they just like weren't paying attention and accidentally gave him a demon of the wrong sex or maybe they were making a statement (laughs) i don't think they were going to make that much of a statement on that particular character (laughs) it would have been a very interesting one but no, it, I'm pretty positive it was a female spider. I didn't recognize it too well. My gut instinct said something like a nephila, which is the golden orb weaver. Okay. It just, the body shape's quite similar. It's not the same exactly, but also nephila are pretty widely varied. But also the size of the spider also made me think probably female because male spiders tend to be pretty small in comparison. I was kind of assuming that they upped the size anyway, just for dramatic effect of like whatever real species they modeled it off of. Then I will slightly change my answer there to be not necessarily the size, but the proportions. Okay. A male will typically have quite a small abdomen and thorax, whilst a female will have often a much kind of larger hind section. Just because they need to be bigger, so they need more fat storage, mm-hmm. basically. And being bigger is makes sense for them. 
So I'm pretty sure it's a female spider, though I love the implication if it was not. The <laughs> pedipalps were, they were large, but they were not that really distinctive boxing glove shape that you get on male spiders. It really looks like they've just put boxing gloves on their pedipalps. Okay. And yeah, I think it was Golden Orb Weaver, but I can't say for certain. That would kind of fit his character, though. What are what are palps? Oh, yeah. What does that mean? The pedipalps are like little legs-like appendages near the mouth. Oh, and they're okay. used partly for feeding and uh, partly for mating. Oh, wow. So they'll transfer. Yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh, it's quite. It's very interesting. There's their mating is surprisingly interesting, um, but probably too long to explain on a two-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll put out a bonus episode about spider sex. Caitlin won't be joining you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. It would literally just be me going, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, we'll just sample that. <laughs> yeah. <be fun. laughs> Religion. I. Uh... I'll start off the religion section here with um, the shortest thing that I had, which I thought uh, was really cool. I really liked how McPhail uh, accidentally makes a good political move um, when he's having his meeting of uh, all the top magisterium people and he has uh, Father Graves carried off and thrown in jail for his lack of faith. This tragedy is not a setback. It is a sign from the authority. The authority has sensed a lack of devotion among our ranks, and for this treachery, 24 of our brothers have been taken as martyrs. Father Graves, your faith is clearly marred with the stain of doubt and Doubt is an insult to the authority, which must be severely punished. You escort him to the cells. Yes, Cardinal. No evidence. Guards! This is absurd. My devotion to the Magisterium is absolute. Cardinal! Thank you. Because I, I don't feel like he does that to like consolidate his power, although it does accomplish that. I feel like he genuinely wants everybody to have like a consistent theology who's sitting at that table, which was like a really good representation of the Inquisition that happened, the Catholic kind of inquisitors that are notorious in European medieval history. Um, like everybody's heard of the Spanish Inquisition, I'm sure. Um, you never expect them. Nobody expects it. Yeah. <laughs> I yep. was waiting for one of you to say that. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that the reputation that they have in pop culture is much more kind of what the magisterium looks like, especially in the books. Kind of what Francis was talking about last time, where there is like, at the observatory, a whole bunch of scientists in the book and like one person kind of watching them all to be like, eh, you, you better correspond to the Bible. Don't make any discoveries that don't fit this book. You know, um, that's not 
the kind of thing that inquisitors were interested in, uh, despite that kind of being the narrative now, like I think, and I've talked about this before with like Galileo, that the narrative that we have now is that because he was making scientific discoveries, the church was angry with him. And that's not why the church was mad at him. It was because he was, you know, heretically saying the Pope is wrong and he's stupid. And they were like, hang on, you can't say the Pope is stupid. <laughs> like that goes against our doctrine. And that's what he got in trouble for. And so it's not, you know, like inquisitors didn't care about, you know, people who are atheists or who were like Muslims or Jews. They cared about like Jewish people who converted and they were like, but did you really convert? What if I use this hot poker? Will will you admit that you didn't actually convert and that you just did it so that you could get a license to sell things, Mr. Jewish person? Uh, that's the kind of stuff that they were worried about. Not atheists. They didn't care about that. So like this policing of the magisterium here is like I was like, oh, this is very inquisitorial the way that they're doing it. And the other thing about that is that, uh, you know, all this is happening in Geneva. And we talked about before how Calvin uh, in the book was like the first magisterium or the not the first. He was the last magisterium pope. And in actual history, Calvin had these things called the consistatory, which was basically inquisition, but for Protestants. And he took over the Genevan government with this thing and like started to police everybody based on like, well, what are your exact beliefs in like these very subtle, you know, like weird things that like people would not, you you have to be like very sophisticated theologically in your arguments to like understand the subtle differences between this and that. And it was like, oh, that's what you believe? Well, off to jail with you or get out of town or we're closing your business or, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It was like crazy the way that Geneva was run by the consistatory uh, in the same way that McPhail is like, you better believe exactly what I believe or to the dungeon with you. So like, I really like this. I don't think it's a good plan based on like how that all went for Calvin. Uh, but it's mm -hmm. cool to see McPhail like run the government in this way. I think it's like a really good representation of actual ways that, this has gone down. Another thing that I noticed. Um, so in uh, Mary Malone's office, we have a book on top of her other science books that is the character of consciousness. And like when I saw that alarm bells were going off in my house, like I've read that book. It's very long. Um, <laughs> Wait, was this in the same scene where she had a printed found copy of her super secret work just sitting on the table. Oh, yes. I didn't notice that, did she? <laughs> it was. Yeah, that Mrs. What, um, Coulter picked it up and started Coulter flipping through it. Oh, is that what that was? Um, this is a book by, it's controversial in the philosophy world. It's written by David Chalmers, who, and this is all pretty contemporary. I think the book's only like 10 years old or something. David Chalmers, by the way, you could look him up and like, He's been on a million podcasts and stuff. Very charming. Uh, but he coined the term the hard problem of consciousness, which is like kind of um, how science can't account for our internal experience of like life and reality. 
Um, it just kind of like describes, you know, science just kind of describes how things happen and not the what it is to be the person who is like seeing things or feeling things or hearing things. It can describe how you see things or hear things or, you know, your sense of touch and stuff like that. But there's no internal description. There's no data on what that is. And it doesn't seem to be able to measure that or touch it or talk about it. And the implication is that because of that, for like for some scientists, that's that's not a problem. It's just a thing that we can't measure. So, you know, it's just not science's place. But for other scientists, they're like, yeah, the reason for that is because it's not real. It doesn't exist. Uh, and so your internal experience is some kind of illusion manifested by, you know, your mind. And so there's not a you there. There's nothing there that's you that's or is experiencing seeing something or falling in love or you're just like uh, a puppet of all of the chemical firings in your brain. Basically, Chalmers is like, you're discounting consciousness and that's a problem because we're throwing out a whole set of data here that we have firsthand experience of and just saying like it's not real and you refuse to account for it but like we know it's real because we experience it and so you can't just say it's not happening and just because you can't measure it like you need to figure out a way to do that because we know that it's there because we experience it just a question quickly on the on the terminology of hard in this particular regard, is that in the same manner as uh, NP hard and things like that in um, computational complexity, where you're saying not just that this is a hard problem in the in the way that oh no like, that's a really difficult. hard sum to solve, but but like right. an this is not ne- not necessarily this is impossible to solve, but we can't prove necessarily that we can solve it any quicker than given time period and i mean np hard is saying it is at least as hard as the hardest problems in non-polynomial time right when you reduce it's something like when you reduce it in polynomial time it still takes a shit ton of time it's right bloody comp- it, like is that is that the same use of hard that they're using there yeah he's he's talking okay. about things like well it's, it's both right because it's like a snappy you know, it's like a double entendre thing. Like, this is difficult, but also, like, how would you figure this data? You know, how would you, mm. how would you even get at it? Um, yeah, I see. Yeah. And so, like, you know, because you could take, like, not even your own experience. Like, how would you compute the experience of, like, your pet cat or something? Is there something that it is like to be your cat? Well, how would you even measure it? Like, if you could completely simulate all of the cat's brain and then somehow measure that and then extrapolate the, could you extrapolate the experience from mapping the material brain? Like a, we can't do that because of exactly what you're saying because of like the amount of information, you know, neurologically that's going on is like way more computational power than we have access to. But then even if we could, Is there like a whole nother set of data that's emerges out of that? And can we have the computational power to do it? 
or is it even there? Like if, if even if we did it and we're like, well, it's not there, is it not there because that's the wrong, we're barking up the wrong tree or does it just not exist? And so like in the book, he goes over like pretty much every argument, including it doesn't exist. There's nothing there to find. And so it's an, it's an exhaustive examination. I don't, it's not really a book that you would go to if like, I'm curious about this subject. It's kind of assumes that you, there's like neuroscience in there and, um, it assumes that you know a lot of philosophy going into it. So the way that it has a connection to this story is that um, one of the ideas that is explored in the book is this um, idea of panpsychism. If our consciousness is in our brain, what is our brain? It's like an arrangement of like fatty tissue and lipids and uh uh, neurons that can conduct electricity. Why is it that you arrange those things in a particular way and consciousness kind of comes out of it? That doesn't really make sense. Like panpsychism kind of solves that whole problem by saying that there's some kind of uh, consciousness that's embedded deep in the universe in the same way of like quantum field ideas of like particle fields, right? Like there's electrons everywhere in the universe simultaneously at all times. So the, the electron field is ubiquitous and we just kind of agitate the field <clears throat> with electromagnetic polarity. So we kind of give it a bump, uh, you know, with like positive and negative pushes and pulls and manipulate it in that way. The same thing for like Higgs boson field. It's everywhere. It's affecting all particles at all times in the way that it like gives everything mass and inertia, uh, slows down or like makes it harder to slow things down. But it's everywhere, you know, it's like uh, all the time. And so like, what if consciousness is like that? Kind of like dark matter is everywhere all the time and we can't like bump it because we don't know how to do that. Um, what if consciousness has some kind of particle or some kind of ubiquity like that on a quantum level that's in everything? And then if when you kind of arrange things just so, then it it like in exactly the way of like Higgs boson, when you get something heavy and dense enough, you know, you get like gravity fields and so you get enough of these consciousness particles, however they interact with each other together. And now you have a self-conscious thinking thing, but everything else is, it's not that consciousness is like, it's aware of itself or anything like that, but that on some level, the panpsychism posits that, you know, consciousness is out there and uh, it can just be arranged such that it turns into self-consciousness. It's interesting that this book came out 10 years ago, which is, you know, 10 years after the books that we're talking about came out, but is still trying to parse through the exact same things. Yeah. Mm. That like 10 years later, humanity is still like, we don't know. It's funny because Chalmers career is like in the 80s, he was talking about this stuff and people were like, that is fringe philosophy that is meaningless and stupid like what are you talking about you know political uh philosophy moral philosophy that's where it's at you know this thing of consciousness irrelevant who cares that's like shit that descartes worried about but now with like neuroscience we're starting to like actually scientifically understand the brain a lot better and these things are like very relevant again 
And the, there's even like some particle physicists who are interested in panpsychism in terms of like, maybe this is real. And like, how could we measure for this? And what, what could we look for? And things like that. And panpsychism is older than 10 years ago. It's like much older, actually, the hundreds of years. Right. But I, I just mean that it's interesting that these are still the same things that plague us, basically. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't want to give the wrong impression that like... Right. David David Chalmers read his dark materials and is like, I could write a PhD about that. Uh, that's not what happened. Isn't that the nature of calling it the hard problem is that these possibly are questions that will always plague us. Yeah. Yeah. I get I guess what I'm trying to say is like the way that you're describing this is it sounds as if Philip Pullman read the character of consciousness and then decided to write his dark materials. But that's just not you know, like that's why I find it interesting, because when you were talking about all these things, I'm like, yes, all these questions come up. All these things come into play. This, you know, so I just find that that is really interesting. Yeah, I've seen him on Twitter talk about panpsychism. So I think he's aware of it. But I don't know if it if, you know, people read his books and they were like, were you talking about panpsychism? He's like, what's that? I think that Phil Pullman is just a really smart person, you know, who's like, yeah, very honestly investigating these questions that he's interested in. So he barks up a similar tree. It's just interesting that there's actually a theory out there of like a field theory of consciousness and that in this story, dark matter is the consciousness field theory. And so that like lines up pretty nicely uh, with panpsychism. Uh, Mary gets told that she should play the role of the serpent. We talked about this in our book uh, discussion of the same point. I won't repeat what I said there about the serpent, but um, I did want to talk a little bit about the Gnostic version of the Garden of Eden. The serpent is a little bit different in Gnosticism. So like in traditional Christianity, um, Satan in the form of the serpent tempts Eve and ruins uh, humanity and the earth. So the serpent is literally Satan. Yeah. I think yeah. I'd in the Christian that, version yeah. Yeah, of the Garden of Eden. In, so not, not David Tennant. Yes. <clears throat> no. <laughs> in the Gnostic version of the Garden of Eden, the world starts out ruined. Uh, the fact that there's a world at all is bad. And that <clears throat> this deformed, blind, senseless God is born accidentally. And that um, he believes that he's alone because he can't sense any of the other gods. And uh, he creates matter uh, with his spiritual energy, which has never existed before. And then he takes spiritual energy from God and, and from the rest of reality. He takes light and knowledge and he uses it to animate the matter. So he makes like plants, animals and people. And so what all of the living things in the world are, are trapped pieces of God and we and we're not supposed to be mortal we're not supposed to experience pain we're not supposed to be trapped in like matter is evil and so the serpent invades this universe that this evil God has created and is Jesus Christ coming to save us by telling us the fundamental nature of reality that actually you are not your body. You are a light 
a source, a, a soul of knowledge and a piece of God trapped in this world. And that by knowing that you can escape the material universe and return to God, you know, if, if you do, if you follow my way. That sounds very Promethean. Yeah. In a manner. Yeah. yeah. So the serpent is Jesus? The serpent is Jesus and is delivering knowledge. Weird. Uh, I know we've talked about this before, but I always find it so interesting that the character or whatever of Jesus just never comes into play in these books, considering how religious they are. Mm-hmm. That's probably just... smart on his part. <laughs> True. And I know he's mostly talking about like Old Testament stuff, but... Mm-hmm. It's just it's just interesting that it never comes up. I think he didn't want his books to actually get banned, maybe. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, think he gave one single shit. Okay. <laughs> he was literally like, I'm taking Catholicism down with my words, <laughs> fictionally. He actually did write a book about Jesus, and he is generally pro-Jesus. He's like, but it's the fans of Jesus who have really messed up. Well, yeah. Like, i like that (laughs) jesus was okay it's all of these other people that are the problem is kind of his take on all of that so he probably left jesus out of it his issue is organized religion and it's basically always be what he objects to anyway i do just want to keep an eye on what the show does with mary after this because i remember when you got to this point in the book i was kind of confused because i think i had I was very much coming at Mary being the serpent from the, like, the serpent was Satan, it's all about temptation, women are evil version of things. Mm -hmm. And I don't actually think that's what Pullman is trying to say here. But yeah. See, but the thing is, with this story, you have to remember that he's saying that all of those are lies that... Right. The That's what the side, magisterium says. Yeah, that the side of the authority has been telling people to keep them right. in in line. As the angels were saying, was it the angels? Shit, have we had this conversation yet in the show where they talk about how there's always been a side fighting for freedom? No, no, no. No, it was it was it was in one of the it was in one of the voiceovers. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. It was in okay. one of the voiceovers, okay. which, which is hated. Yeah, yeah, but it was there, that there was a side always fighting for good. So if that's the case, and we interpret the whole serpent thing tempting Eve, then he was tempting her towards knowledge, which is good, and he was disobeying the evil authority. I also just want to say that I loved the actress who plays Mary Malone, her line read on on just the word crafty. Okay, so because we... (laughs) When she said that about the serpent being crafty, I genuinely thought they were going to cut to her making her fake ID and like doing some crafts. <laughs> oh, like mm. a- oh, that would have been so good. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. That is literally I was like, is she going to do that? Like literally like like he, he makes things. He's. She's crafty. She take up knitting. I want that now. Yeah. That was so good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did we have any other discussion points we wanted to make sure to bring up? Um, another one about religion, mm-hmm. which uh, both Anya and I have identified in our notes. <laughs> Where does theology come into in science, basically? That was a like, great line. I, that was so good. Yeah. yeah. That interaction between the two of them. 
Oh, oh I my loved god, it. that was so good. And like Mary's not naive isn't the right word, but she's very she's like willing to trust and, and uh, she, she seems nice. Like Yeah. If we just haven't had many characters who just seemed like good, nice people. <laughs> you know? But Mary seems like a good, nice person. Yeah. And I do love the way that Mary was not trusting initially, right? Like, she was suspicious as, as hell because of all the bullshit that Oliver and uh, yeah. Charles Latram Boreal were trying to do. But then as soon as she finds out that Mrs. Coulter is Lyra's mom, it, like, everything changes. And she seems, she like, is. very willing to listen to whatever this experimental theology is. She's not, like, mm. yeah, she experimental theology. What? She's like, tell me. Tell me, tell me all about it. I, I want to hear. Yeah. yeah. And, that was such a great bit. And I think as far as, like, actually the question, where does theology come into science? For me, I feel like the answer is physics. Just because <laughs> physics is asking the, like, really fundamental questions about, you know, like, what is the universe? How was the universe created? And, like, those are questions where I feel like theology does enter into it, or at least it can really easily enter into it. I don't see it as much in, in like, the science that I do. I mean, morality and ethics enter into science always, and you can take your morality and ethics from theological sources, but you don't have to. Whereas, like, I feel like it's hard to really do cosmology and, like, certain types of physics without asking theological questions. Theological or philosophical? I mean, I would say those, in that context, those are kind of the same thing, just based on how our human brains work. And, like, the social context that we're embedded in. It's interesting. I'd contend that theology is, it relies on religion to exist. Theology is a study of religion. Now, it possibly is the philosophy of religion. Um, it's kind of halfway between philosophy and sociology, but specifically about religion. I'm interested as to whether it is in and of itself a separate subject or whether it's a branch of philosophy. I really enjoy that when when this question was said in the show, I genuinely interpreted it as something something to ponder. You know, mm -hmm. not maybe like one of yeah. those unanswerable questions. And the scientists here are like, no, this is where it comes in. This is how it happens. And I was just I'm like, not saying this is maybe where it we comes could in. just uh, <laughs> contemplate it. It doesn't have to have an answer. Well, I mean, I don't. Yeah, mm -hmm. I definitely don't think there is a definitive answer. But that it's more like where I think the relevant questions are than yeah. the answer. I guess... I just like that you gave it a very I'm a scientist answer. It was, it was very good. Of course, of course. Yeah. Would you expect anything less from no, us? No, no, it was just, it was, I just really enjoyed it. It was very good. I think Mary's much more willing to entertain the fact that it might be the same side than the Magisterium's teachings, though not necessarily than Miss Coulter. Yeah. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Miss Coulter is mind-numbingly intelligent. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting to see how they are actually in a manner mirror characters, in, and in fact, in a way that we don't see in the books. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 
I love the idea of these two as like foils for each other because they are actually so similar. And a lot of the time character foils are set up as opposites or like coming from different points of view. But these two have like very similar kind of experiences, or at least they grew up with very similar ideas of how to become what they wanted to be. And yet they've turned out so incredibly different. And I love that about them. I think that's what bothers Mrs. Coulter about Mary, why she gets so upset. Yeah. Is like, it's almost like a version of her in that Oxford. Like, you know, she's like, I don't know if I agree with that, but something. Well, like, I mean, almost right. Like she just, it is kind of like looking in a, in a mirror of like, what if I, I, I posit that Mrs. Coulter still would have been evil. There's a lot of people out there who've had some bad shit happen to them who don't experiment on children. You know, <laughs> so yeah, but she could have been the evil that, version of Mary Malone, and like yes, that's exactly. what like, she is. Like I was saying about Mary being a genuinely nice person, I do not think Mrs. Coulter is a genuinely nice person, even if she'd had a lot of freedom in her life. But is that to do with her upbringing? Is that a a question of context rather than inherently she is a bad? But I'm sure there are other very smart women in her world, who had similar upbringings, who did not murder children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you can't just blame it all on context. I'm sorry. Some people are just fucking evil. And I like that about her, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you can also say that whilst she had the tendencies such that given that situation, this happened, that doesn't mean that given that situation not happening, she would have been per se evil. She had the tendencies to be evil. She mm. had the moral flexibility to do things which were otherwise would be considered immoral. But you, without the opportunity to, or without the drive to, she might never have been in a situation to do them, and thus would never have done the evil things, even if she were capable of them. Maybe. That's like moral luck. Yeah. What you're talking about. <laughs> I, no literally like that is depending. a thing moral luck is oh like, interesting yeah it's it's just the yeah like you maybe you are a murderer but you've just never had the opportunity to murder and so therefore you're like everybody you're an innocent person you're a good person but like actually no you're a murderer you just never murdered anyone i did love her delivery of the the lines when she says impertinent intelligent free yeah and it's like you can she like starts out so like mad and then at the end she's just like jealous and you can see where that that original judgment came from yeah definitely yeah she you can tell just like how much she wishes um that That she she had the freedom to experiment on children Really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> nothing holding her back. <laughs> that she could have been given the freedom to pursue her own intellectual pursuits. Like when she talks about how, you know, the only reason why she doesn't have a PhD is because she's a woman. Like she's written yeah. papers, but the only way she can publish them is if a man gets credit. Like, I don't know. All, all of that kind of resonated with me. Um, and, like, a lot of the conversations that are happening in academia today, I mean, like, obviously our system is not nearly as corrupt as the the fictional one in this universe, but, like, 
I know people who have been left off of papers that, like, they did most of the research for because their advisors are pieces of shit, you know? Like, people, there are instances where, you know, people plagiarize and take credit for shit that they didn't write. Women are obviously allowed to be scientists here, but that doesn't mean that there aren't fucked up gender dynamics in the way that we still practice science today. So Weird. Systems of authority lead to corruption in science, too. It's almost <laughs> like there's something wrong with authority. Hmm. Man, that'd be such a bad name to name a god, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm not trying to argue that obviously i i do also really love that and that it probably will resonate with a lot of people watching this show because it's obviously not just science where women are treated like shit and i love that a lot but i also i love how almost right after that they have that scene where boreal's describing the specters and how they only attack adults and right away you see that evil click in mrs coulter's eyes when she says dust yeah. And you can see that she's yeah. like, this is it. This is the thing. This is why I was experimenting on children. And I love that. It's so good. Yeah. This so, justifies it. That delivery yeah, so, was so good. <laughs> and yeah. also you can just tell, like, I love that emotional journey that she goes on where, like, she comes into this world, like, a little bit off kilter, but still mostly confident and, like, mm -hmm. feeling like she's in charge then she kind of, like, goes to this dark place of, like, oh, God, what is, why am I even here? Like, what the fuck is wrong? Like, I wish, you know, like, she, you can tell her, like, her confidence takes a big hit. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, she just, like, takes it all back. She's like, no, I'm Marisa fucking Coulter. I will figure out a solution for how to deal with these specters. Um and I'm excited to see what that is. So, I'm keying off of that, Anya. I really like the scene where you get Mrs. Coulter, I feel like being very vulnerable with Lyra. You know, like she's not trying to dominate her, or at least not right away. Um, she's like, I could tell you about this. I, I'll, you know, I'll help you with this. I'll help you with that. Um, it's like, it's like that whole basement is like a vulnerability basement. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with this. Oh, it's it's a what a surprise, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it. I feel like she is trying to do the kind of thing that Lee was talking about a little bit, but she like can't help herself and be like, "You actually, you're just a mirror of me." Uh, and then that is, and then Lyra's like, "Fuck this." And, mm and then actually does become a mirror of her. I, that whole thing uh, is just so good, I felt like. Yeah, I really liked that scene, but I don't think Mrs. Coulter knows how to be vulnerable if it kicked her in the butt, you know? <laughs> like, I think that was just her being manipulative. I don't know. I saw some vulnerability there. I definitely think that this TV show Mrs. Coulter, much more so than the book Mrs. Coulter, genuinely loves Lyra and wants to have a relationship with her, even if she's completely incapable of doing that. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean. Like, I definitely believe that she loves Lyra, well, in her way, and wants 
And that's what she wants. She wants to have a relationship with Lyra. I just don't think she knows how to be vulnerable or genuine. What she knows is how to manipulate people. Yeah, you're right. I I think what I'm not, I'm not I'm not saying it correctly because she's she's definitely not uh this isn't healthy for sure um what she's doing and I think she is I guess what I mean is she is being as vulnerable as she can be uh which is like still pretty guarded. I think you're right about that. I don't know. I by like exposing what she wants like that is a type of vulnerability, right? Because by For sure. wanting yeah. something, she's still giving Lyra the opportunity to say no and turn her down. And so like that is vulnerability. It's saying, I really, really want this. I n- want you to give it to me. And you do have the opportunity to not give me what I want, which is not how she normally operates. Normally she just takes what she fucking wants. I guess... I guess. It was a really great scene at any way, but it did sort of feel like, um, I don't know, it felt to me like she was pretending to give Lyra the power. And I'm not yeah. saying that, like, like obviously if Lyra had said no and things had gone differently, she would have just taken Lyra anyways. But yeah. you're right in saying that letting her have the opportunity to say no before she just took her is different. I think that's what I mean is like, she's trying to do the right thing, but she like literally can't (laughs) like she, she's not capable of it. Um, It's like, uh, I think the situation like does not go the way that she wants it to because she just has not done the emotional work to be in a healthy place with that whole thing. And she can't help herself, but try to dominate Lyra, even when she's getting beat up, eventually she like shows that you know i this has happened to me before and i can endure it and it like terrifies lyra and um and she starts to dominate the situation again and so like yeah i loved that bit so interesting sorry carry on let's talk about that fight for a second because that's a really cool mirroring from the scene in season one where the golden monkey attacks pan and they have that fight that way. And now it's like exactly the opposite. And Lyra even mentions, um, you know, later on, I didn't like doing to her what she did to me. I'm pretty sure we mentioned that or that was mentioned when that fight came up in season one. And we said, well, why didn't Pan turn into a fucking bear and just right. stand or sit on this monkey for a bit? And then Pan this time turns into, I think, a wolverine. And utterly destroys the tiny little monkey i mean could you imagine if you had an ant demon and then you know your kid suddenly decides well my demon's gonna be an anteater now (laughs) (laughs) bye-bye i mean i'm sure there's situations where that happens and that says something very interesting about their relationship Mm. Um, but like i really like that lyra is so single-mindedly brutal in it she is not you know she is just using this not just to kind of disable um, her mother, but to punish. And you, you look at it and you go, mm. actually, she is more like uh, Miss Coulter than she wants to believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also the fear, the fear on Daphne Keen's face when she first sees Mrs. Coulter coming down into the basement. Mm. It was so good. Yeah, I like like that. That had to be a big impact scene, and Daphne Keene absolutely pulled it off. 
look, if you're wanted for murder, which, you know, you did do the manslaughter thing, definitely. There's no two ways about that. But if you're wanted for it, and then someone is threatening your well-being and the well-being of others, and you have a knife that can cut anything, and they have you by the hand and are twisting it, and you're next to their foot with the knife, put the knife in the foot. (laughs) Just, like, this isn't a tricky situation will's lack of being able to think on the spot slightly took me out of it because he's so good in that in all the other ways and just in this one scene you're like dude just just like nick him it'll make him flinch enough it's not hard this thing cuts literally anything you cut a hole in the fucking floor and make him fall into it (laughs) like just a bit i don't know It, it just made me go come on will come on I mean, they're in the basement, so I don't think he could cut a hole in the floor. Uh, well, <laughs> Unless it was actually that's... a hole into another world. Anyways, whatever. Mm. That um, would be cool. Just use the knife that you have. It does say you don't want to use it for vulgar purposes. I mean, yeah, yeah. maybe the pain in his hand, right? Because he's not, I mean, like, his hand is still very raw, not healed at all. Like, I could imagine him just being completely incapacitated by that pain. I'd also like to point out that Will spends much of this episode saying that he doesn't want to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I'm, I if think there's anyone the who you could justify hurting. Yeah, but exactly. Like, that's the whole thing, right? Of, like, he doesn't want to hurt people, and he's in a situation where he has to, you know, make a choice about that. And this is a person like you're saying, who is like worth hurting, who is threatening everything that matters in his life. And so it, I think it brings that conflict, that particular scene like really brings that conflict into light. Yeah. I mean, I think Anya's right that like, you know, he's blindingly in pain and can't make a rational choice in that moment. But like at the same time, he doesn't, his instinct is to not hurt people because he's like a good person. Yeah, yeah, I I do take that. It's just it, it just took me slightly out of the moment. I kind of wish I had, didn't think about this until you brought it up, but it would be very interesting for him to have hurt him more, and then have the same yeah. kind of like the conversation with Lyra at the end. Both of them be like, "Whoever we were there, that's not who we want to be." Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, like that. That would have been nice. That would have been good. The whole thing with Lyra, I think, kind of illustrates what I was trying to say last time with the pedagogy of the oppressed of like you can see that Lyra is doing what was done to her mm-hmm. you know and and that is power that is you know invulnerability and humanity she is like being Mrs. Coulter and she is at least reflecting on it and taking other examples and dialoguing with somebody about what it means and and transforming herself in positive ways and so all of that was like so good to see after talking about that. Like it is following that psychology in a very real way. I did also like that um, Will threatening Boreal's like artifacts. Yeah, yeah, that was good. <laughs> and it was it was just really funny. He's <laughs> yeah. like, "I'll do it," and he's like, "Don't do it." And he goes, "Woman," and he's like, "Oh, you." bastard i told you not to do that <laughs> you can see it almost worked uh, his bodily flinch is so good so well acted i loved it 
Um, and so speaking of Boreal, we have to talk about the fact that he has a closet full of clothes for Marissa. <laughs> like, so we we hinted on this a little bit in our uh, conversation about the last episode, but like this episode is what makes me think that Boreal is actually in love with Mrs. Coulter and not just manipulating her. Like, the fact that he has, you know, this whole closet full of clothes for her, like, he's clearly put a lot of thought into what bringing her to this world would be and has been waiting for the perfect moment to do it. Um, the way he's, like, so annoyed when she starts bringing up Lord Asriel. <laughs> he's like, mm-hmm. oh, do we have to talk about your ex? Come on. <laughs> and then, and yeah, like... Uh, Alan said, like, bringing her down into the basement of vulnerability, like, really showing, um, (laughs) sorry. That's the worst pickup line ever. Do you want to come to my basement of vulnerability? (laughs) My basement of regret. Or or my science cabin. I mean, I know which one I would want. You'll pass through the hallway of making mistakes. (laughs) Um, no, but, like, really showing her his whole self and, like, who he is. Yeah, I think he is... 100% actually in love with her and she is absolutely not reciprocating those feelings the way that she responds just by saying if you actually got me you wouldn't know what to do with me it's so cold but like delightfully cold if you can't deal with me at my child killingest you don't deserve me at my child killingest (laughs) 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 Uh, I did also like that when she was talking about Asriel and she was like, so you know the story? And he's like, Boreal's like, yeah, 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 um, Asriel seduced you. And she's like, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Yeah, we all know. They also changed the story from the books, but that, I guess that's not important. Um, In what way? Well, she said she was out of wedlock. I'm like, no, you were married to a different dude. Oh, that's why yeah. you're Mrs. Coulter. Like, I don't know. Oh yeah, and that's why Asriel her husband. murdered her husband. Yeah. Well, in self-defense, but no. But I think you're right. Actually, last episode, I think I was complaining about not totally understanding Boreal's what it what is he doing? What does he want? What does he need? Uh, and this episode, and I think you guys were right when you were like, he wants and needs power, Alan. Uh, but. I think this episode clarified it a lot more for me why he would let Lyra go and will go and and all of this stuff because this is what he wanted. He wanted to like have a life with her and to, you know, be a power couple in two worlds, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's it is not it's a total fantasy. He is she is out of his league. He is not he doesn't have the game, he doesn't have the mind, he doesn't like he doesn't have it, oh unfortunately. God. He's an incel. I mean, kind of, <laughs> you know. Honestly, kinda, though, his like, fantasy his kind of are. his fantasy sounds pretty good to me. Being a power couple oh. in two worlds. I don't think she's I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that out of fine. his league. I mean, only in the sense that with that attitude, she is. Well, okay. I mean, she's deciding that he's out of her league, but she's also decided that she will be with no man, that every single man is out of her league. Yeah. So mm-hmm. of all the people to have a shot with her, I think he has the best shot 
and she's just decided that even the best is not good enough for her. And that's totally her prerogative. <laughs> but I don't blame him for trying. She wants Asriel. It's not yeah, like... I think she does. She wants Asriel. Yeah. Well, I think she would say yes to Asriel in certain circumstances. Okay, okay, oh. that's yeah, fair. She, yeah, she nearly did. Yeah. She, like yeah, when she... you've... Mm-hmm. Broken between worlds. Mm-hmm. That's a very romantic setting. <laughs> Set out the, you know, the Chianti, nice steak dinner, small child in a cage. It's brilliant. Yeah. That's how you truly seduce Mrs. Coulter. Actually, it's yes, it's true. <laughs> okay, so oh, no. he's like, you want to conquer the universe with me? And she's like, oh man, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. This, this is Boreal's problem. He didn't go hard enough he said do you want to conquer two worlds she's like no fuck you with your two worlds let's conquer the universe yeah i'm just saying it's not like he's being super unreasonable Hmm. no i think you're right i think you're right it just clarified for me more of like where boreal's coming from like everything kind of makes more sense to me mm-hmm. now looking back and i think part of the problem with our conversation last episode was that I had watched ahead and you hadn't. And so yeah. everything from last episode makes more sense if you know what's coming. Okay, one one last final Miss Coulter moment. Uh, Mrs. Coulter, Dr. Coulter, no. Um, I, did, I did love uh, Mary Malone being like Dr. Malone. Um, yeah. Because that was a good thing. Um, no, the scene where Mrs. Coulter locks the golden monkey in the house before she goes yes. out. Oh, that's like... I had questions. Okay, do you have questions? Because in the show, um, we saw that in season one when Lyra at, was at Mrs. Coulter's apartment. Yeah. She literally yeah. asks, how can you go so far from your demon? It's just so good, though. Like... Ruth Wilson's acting and the CGI of the monkey. I feel like mm-hmm. the monkey is such a character in its own right, um, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. really saying something considering that it has no real dialogue um, and it's completely CGI. But the way that Mrs. Coulter and her demon are playing off of each other is just fantastic. There was one of the moments where Boreal is trying to like impress her with his shit and he's like, he's not looking at her and talking about his stuff in a glass case or whatever. And Mrs. Coulter and the monkey look at each other and give each other this look like for fuck's sake, <laughs> like it's just so good. Cause they never bond. They always hate each other, but even they agree <laughs> that like, this is tedious. This bitch. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like her locking the monkey up and going in the Tesla to the university was almost like her putting on armor of like, I'm leaving behind this part of me that I reject, you know? And it just totally does not work when she gets in there with Mary Malone. She falls apart, which I love. I just really want the backstory of how that happened, how she can do that with the monkey. Because if we don't get it, I just have my own theories. And I like like it because in the books, we, we have no idea who Mrs. Coulter was growing up or who her parents were or anything like that. So... It's interesting that they are coming up with this story for her. Also, I just want to highlight Francis's note, monkey with a seatbelt, because that was very hilarious. Yeah, that was good. Yes. The first shot in the episode is monkey wearing seatbelt, and it was adorable. (laughs) 
I, I, I'm actually enjoying the monkey more and more. He has more personality as this goes through, and he's less of a outright villainous character and more of a slightly pathetic character in a lot of manners. Yeah. I wish we'd gotten to see whether, like, did the monkey put the seatbelt on? Did Mrs. Coulter put the seatbelt on the monkey? <gasps> oh, I wish we'd gotten so to cute. see that. <laughs> Just tucks him into the car seat. Yeah. <laughs> That's adorable. All right, I've got a few little notes here. Um, they're in kind of chronological order going through, but there's not many of them left. We've actually talked about nearly all of them. First of all, I thought the knife was longer, just in my head. I don't know why, but it seems that the blade's almost the same length as the handle. And to me, that's like, it, it, it's just not quite what I imagined. I imagined it to be maybe uh, one and a half to two times the length of the handle. Minor things, but it just, I was like, oh, interesting. It also, it gets buried up to the hilt when he mm. throws it against the stone wall this time, but not when it was falling through lead. So uh, <laughs> that was a thing. I absolutely loved um, Lyra's line. Oh, Will, you left the window open. <laughs> it's just really funny. <laughs> just made me giggle. During the scene when the angels destroy the cave, I loved that the uh, the emergency lighting was dark red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just a minor thing but it's like you can imagine the designers going okay we're making this scientific institution and if all the power goes out we want it to look as scary as possible <laughs> <laughs> we'll illuminate everything in these horrible like red colours we'll have some screams some cobwebs will come down from the roof <laughs> and we'll lock all the doors <laughs> another little thing was I really loved when they just had the encounter with Tulio there's some little dust motes in the atmosphere. I don't know if that was a deliberate kind of hint that, hey, dust is a thing, but it, I just liked it. If it wasn't, then it gave that impression and that just makes it better for me. It was very nice. The final two things I had were, one, Mary is just less prepared than she was in the book. And I really quite like that. Like it all feels like a bit of a kind of rushing to get everything together she doesn't really know what she's just like oh god where the pen and paper shit um uh," and i like i like that yeah and then just the final thing is when they say that you will be protected to mary are they referring to protecting her from the specters yes yeah cool just wanted to confirm that yeah because otherwise you would be super worried that they're sending her into chudagatsu Well, if you want to avoid spoilers, now is the time to say goodbye. Otherwise, stick around after the outro. Next time, we'll be talking about episode six, Malice. If you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Now for spoilers! Everyone's special! So, just to get this off my chest, the dust versus angels thing, it's just that like yes the books do kind of say that dust is angels but also like 
that the evil angels then would also be dust and dust is something that is attracted to knowledge and self-awareness and wants that so i just don't see that that's what the angels are it, it's got to be two different things because the people answering her are the angels that want to help her and you know that want her to help them and dust is just this thing that the world needs the con that encourages consciousness so they have to be different things yeah the quote if i remember correctly is something like what we are matter what we do angel and in that manner what what they are is dust and they are they do angel jobs but you don't have to be dust necessarily to be an angel just that the good angels are dust and the idea that dust is what is answering the alethiometer, but we have to remember that Fra Pavel has an alethiometer too, and so the then the dust is helping both sides. So I don't think that. I genuinely think, well, I don't know, because sometimes the the alethiometer has an agenda, and you so then you would think it's it's them good angels, them rebel angels answering the questions, but also it genuinely seems omnipotent. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, you're right. It it genuinely seems like if she asked, what is Will thinking right now? It could tell her. And how the fuck would angels know that? You know? Like, mm-hmm. so <laughs> what is... So I genuinely think that dust, and maybe it is the physical dust, dark matter stuff that is powering the alethiometer, that that has an agenda and can tell you what somebody is thinking. But that the angels who Mary was talking to in the computer are different. Okay, mm-hmm. so the an- the angels can, like, work through dust, but are not synom- synonymous with dust. Exactly, because they need dust, too. Maybe they're, they're whatever f- type of physicality they have, which isn't the same, obviously. Maybe that's made of dust. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, dust coming together. Like, mm-hmm. you could argue that maybe our s- the demons or our souls are made of dust, and that's what angels are. But again, I don't think the books ever actually answer this fucking question because it, they genuinely say, yes, we are angels answering this. But then there's the bad angels and the good angels and the fact that in the next book, Mary sees dust. Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it is just like a gold dust. Like Ooh, we kind of see dust right away. in the Yeah, first. Y- you're right. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I genuinely think the books do not give us a good answer about this and which is fine. I like that we get to discuss it then. But that's why I make such a big deal out of it, because it doesn't make any fucking sense. From my memory, it was that the angels were created f- like from dust. Dust condensed into angels, and the authority was the first of the angels, which was created by dust condensing. Right. That's what I was about to say, that what I remember about it, the relationship between dust and angels, is basically that <clears throat> angels are like an emergent property of dust like itself organizes somehow you know for whatever reason into like a consciousness and then that consciousness this is almost exactly gnosticism like that that consciousness is like oh i'm god and that is like the origin story of the evil god and gnosticism that created our universe right is like yeah but so it was i don't remember i could be 100 percent wrong i because it has been a year since I read the third book, uh, the last time I read it. But I don't remember that ever being said. I think that that is 
conclusions that we are coming to and accepting as fact because it makes sense. And because you already had this knowledge about Gnosticism and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, I I would trust with that interpretation 100%. Because it was like me recognizing it and going, oh, that's what happened. And then that's my memory. And then I did, I kind of mentioned this in the main body. I am super excited to see how Mrs. Coulter masters the specters because in the book, we never find out how she does it. Yes, I'm so excited. It's just like unexplained. Yeah. And I, I'm quite confident that the show is going to fill in those blanks because I think they've been really good at doing that so far. Uh, Yes, I'm excited for that. And just because we're going to have to cut it out from me saying it earlier, I'm really excited to see her kill Boreal because I could just see that she is fucking done with him. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, I can see her absolutely just using the specters, getting him to test that she can control them. Or something like not oh, even, yeah, I could see that. You know, nice, like not even like caring that. that she's can't. Like, I really like, like, we were talking before how we're like, but why would she kill him in this one? And now I'm like, oh no, she's definitely gonna kill this bastard. <laughs> like, stand over good. there, no, yeah. inside of that circle, yeah, right? Th- yeah, good. <laughs> Is that a target? <laughs> no, no, it's not a target. It's just stand there. Don't worry about those ominous red lights, they'll yeah. go away. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing that I think was interesting and why I actually, thinking about it more, do wish that Will had used the knife a little bit more on Boreal is that I do love how they keep bringing up that Will doesn't want to hurt people, but that he keeps having to hurt people because he did fight back against Boreal. And he, I feel like he kind of won that fight, didn't he, eventually? Because he had to get away and open the didn't window. Someone smashed him over the head with a vase, but that might have been Lyra. He did. Oh, no. No, no, no. no that did. was him. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he kind of yeah. won that fight. And he keeps having to hurt people. And he keeps talking about how he doesn't want to hurt people, which is similar to the books where people keep telling him that he's a warrior and that, you know, the knife chose him to fight and all these things. And mm-hmm. I don't know if any of you know this. Uh, I think it is technically canon because it was in one of the um, short books. But but if not, it's just something Philip Pullman has said that he always imagined after the stories Will became a doctor and that mm. because he was so used to being able to put his mind into the knife and feel outside of himself that he was like one of the best doctors ever. And I love that for Will, that mm. after all this fighting and hurting people that he had to do, that he becomes this healer person. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the subtle scalp. <laughs> yeah i think i was able to talk about my serpent stuff in a non-spoilery way during the body of the episode that's all i had yeah i think the gnosticism is closer to how she appears though right is in terms of like the satan or the serpent archetype it's more like jesus than Mm. like yeah tempter yeah she's not a tempter she's like giving people knowledge I love that interpretation because it puts Jesus back in the story, that Mary is Jesus. Mary is Jesus. Yeah, not only does it put Jesus back in the story, but it makes Jesus female. So that's cool. And a snake. (laughs) I love it. I love it all. Ginger. (laughs) Ginger. Oh, my God. (laughs) A ginger Jesus snake. Great. All right. So I think that that is genuinely it. Catch us next time. And don't forget... There's only one hornbeam tree in all of Oxford.
Boreal so should have done it should have been on a vinyl though. It should have been like, yeah, this is yeah, like yeah. the first press. I no, actually no, no, got it no, made from the blood of the artist. A new money would be like, oh no, I'm setting up the most state of the art sound yeah. system. Yeah. No, 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 no. New money is a really lovely sound system. And then he's taken the vinyl, his custom vinyl with his own face <laughs> on it, and he's ripped it himself using very uh, very expensive setup. So he has it as an MP3. And he plays right. it in like 128K on his first generation Creative Zen. Where you can hear the audio burn on the MP3. Oh, no. <laughs> like, shh, underneath everything. Good, yeah. Yeah, he, he actually got the MP3 download and then added Vinyl Static himself. Right. <laughs> I'm suddenly thinking of the, maybe you guys are all too young. But the old Saturday morning Looney Tunes cartoons of like the frog that sings and then he brings it to someone else and be like, check out this singing frog. And then it just sits there and ribbits. Oh, yeah. And they're yep. like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, look, the the dark matter is conscious and it talks to me. And then it does nothing. And they're like, sure, Mary. <laughs> yeah, sure it does. <laughs> Are those Mary's blue jeans? Like, are they the same kind and everything? When I was looking at him, I was like, because she's always wearing jeans. And I was like. (laughs) Can you imagine if she turned up in the in the same outfit to meet Mary? How embarrassing would that have been? It would have been absolutely hilarious, though. And actually, if we're just going to be talking about costuming very briefly, I love Lord Boreal's or Boreal's sneakers. Like, I always forget that he's wearing them, and then when his shoes come into the scene, I'm like, oh yeah, he, he does wear, he is like a sneakerhead, and it's a very good choice. Oh, he's a twat. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. Religion? Don't kick the table, Alan. <clears throat> Can we can yeah. we write that on a sign and post it on your table? It's on my table. I was kick. reading the sign that's on my table. <laughs> was that um oh why am I suddenly only able to think of the actor's name, Mr. Keen? Um who's the the guy who's the cardinal now? McPhail. Why can't I think of his name? Yeah, McPhail. Good. This is a good start. Um <laughs> I don't usually talk this much, so yeah, we all know that's a lie. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's why I talk so much here because I don't ever talk. Oh, I uh, see. I see. Voice. I thought you were saying on the podcast. No. So, um, the we we are wrapping up now. I'm. Yep. We're moving on to spoilers. Yep. Oh, Alan, are you? Are, have are we already talked about? All no, of- I'm making this decision. We are. Oh, oh yes. trouble with audio. <laughs> but I, but I, but I have talked about it all, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. Great. Perfect. <laughs>